1: Good evening and welcome to The Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, after being struck down by COVID for a week, ABC Media Watch host Paul Barry returned last night to criticize a recent wave of media reports about a miracle cure against the COVID virus, garlic. Barry was right, the garlic story was a beat up. The tests to prove that garlic could fight off the virus were done in Petri dishes, not on humans, and the research, which is not yet published, was funded by the company flogging the product. But what Barry neglected to point out was that the vaccines that the ABC has relentlessly plugged for years are even worse. At least garlic isn't killing people or giving them permanent heart conditions as the vaccines are now doing. In 2021, Barry was in fact an emphatic critic of reports suggesting the AstraZeneca vaccine was causing adverse reactions in some people, including death. He had to later apologize for getting that wrong. The AstraZeneca vaccine, as we now know, is no longer available in Australia. You'd think that the conflicting information about the virus and vaccines would have stopped by now, but it is as bad as ever. Here's a report from the Melbourne Herald Sun newspaper just yesterday saying that being unvaccinated makes you more likely to still be sick from the virus two years later. Judging by the response to the online version of that story, not even the Herald Sun's readers are falling for that scaremongering anymore. It's certainly a strange way to attract readers. If you cast your mind back to the halcyon days of of December 2019, you'll recall a nation that was troubled only by the fake crisis of climate change and for want of other worries, how to spend the billions of dollars we were making from digging up iron ore and coal and selling it to China and India. But that all changed when China announced in early 2020 the emergence of the COVID virus, supposedly from a wet market in Wuhan. The country, indeed the world you see around you now is dramatically different more easily frightened, more dependent on government, more in debt, and more divided. All those changes weren't caused by the virus, which turned out to be not much worse than a bad version of, the, of influenza, but by our reaction to it. Three institutions that we previously trusted are now, since COVID, treated with, at best, scepticism and at worst, contempt the media, medicine, and politics. Who could have guessed that in in 2019 that these three would join forces to try to destroy freedom and profit from fear at the expense of the trust they once enjoyed. The media, which for generations was based on the idea that it spoke up for its readers and viewers, switched overnight to become a megaphone for the powerful. The medical profession revealed itself to be not much more than a front for pharmaceutical companies, which as it turns out, are among the most corrupt companies in history, and politicians audaciously seized the opportunity to increase their power through undemocratic means. Analysing how we allowed this to happen will take years and will require those who perpetrated it to admit they were wrong. It will also require the public to accept that it played a role in this catastrophic power shift, accepting the undemocratic seizing of power by tyrannical leaders and health bureaucrats. As writer Dan Hannon said in The Telegraph in London this week, lockdowns look horribly like becoming a standard response to future health scares. The monster was not destroyed after all, a sequel to the horror film may follow. It would be comforting to pin the responsibility on someone, autocratic politicians, cowardly bureaucrats, sensationalist broadcasters. But the horrible truth is that as a country, we did this to ourselves. And in all likelihood, we would do it again tomorrow. One person who is fighting valiantly to ensure this does not happen is my next guest, Californian doctor and medical ethics expert, Aaron Cariati, author of the brilliant new book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State, which describes the quote, new religion of health combined with state power as probably the most efficient of its kind that Western history has ever known. Dr. Dr. Cariati, welcome
0: to the show. Thanks, Fred, great to be with you. Thank you for that kind introduction.
1: It's a pleasure and I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book and highly recommend it. Now, Aaron, you were working at the University of California in Irvine in 2021. When vaccine mandates were introduced, you had already recovered from the virus at that point and argued you had natural immunity, which was either as good or even better than the vaccine. You refused the jab, what happened then?
0: So I refused the jab and I challenged the university's vaccine mandate in federal court here in the United States and made, made an argument that my constitutional rights were being violated by their policy. The university moved as swiftly as they could Basically to fire me, so they quickly placed me on unpaid uh, what uh, on what they call actually investigatory leave then unpaid suspension a month later, and then a month after that they they let me go and just to put this into context, I was a full professor at the University in the School of Medicine, so I had advanced through the academic ranks I taught courses to the medical students across all four years of their medical training curriculum. And I also directed the medical ethics program at the university. So that involved chairing the ethics committee in the hospital, getting involved in various ethics policies at the university, not just at the Irvine branch campus where I worked, but all five of the campuses in California that had hospitals. I was involved with the UC office of the president at devising pandemic policies up until it came to the vaccine mandate policy, where our committee of experts was not consulted. So that policy came down sort of from on high. There was no discussion, no debate. I published a piece in a, in a newspaper here, uh, the Wall Street Journal, to try to get a conversation going, You know, arguing that university vaccine mandates were unethical. And shortly after I published that piece, the university went ahead and finalized their vaccine mandate. And I, I just felt at that point that... Um, it wasn't enough just to pub- publicly criticize the policy in writing in, in the newspaper. But given my position as head of bioethics, I thought I needed to actually try to do something to change the policy. So that was the reason for the lawsuit. I was seeing colleagues of mine being steamrolled by this policy. I was seeing nurses that had given decades of service to you know in the hospital, caring for patients, uh, including during the pandemic when everyone else was staying at home. Getting fired because they exercised their right of informed consent to so decline is, so th- the th- vaccine.
1: Th- this wound up being a, a quite a prolonged legal case. And as you say, you were interacting with colleagues who yeah. were in a similar situation. Uh, you describe in the book that it, it wasn't, a, I mean, you're making it sound reasonably simple, but it was a, an awfully difficult time for you. You're a father of how many kids have you got?
0: Yeah, that's right. It, it was a difficult decision. I'm the father of five children and the primary breadwinner in the family. So this had obvious repercussions for me as a career. I I had been at the university for 15 years, 19 if you include my residency training, which I also did there. And I anticipated and expected that I would retire there. I was very happy in academic medicine, caring for patients, doing my research, uh, working on the ethics program and, and teaching and supervising med students and residents. So well, yeah, I all just of this to, was- Sorry to interrupt,
1: um, Aaron. I just wanted to zoom in on that, you know, the fact that you were teaching ethics. And during your <laughs> prolonged confrontation with your former employer, the University of California, did you ever sense at any moment that they even perceived the irony of sacking Uh, an expert in bioethics over an issue involving his his ethics.
0: No, it's very strange. And I can't help but think that the university simply felt threatened by a dissident within the ranks, especially a dissident with a title that would give him some level of, of credibility. And it showed just how deeply wedded the university was to this particular policy and the rest of the sort of COVID apparatus that was rolled out during the pandemic. I think I think there were financial reasons for that. I think there were reasons related to political power that drove that. Um, but it did make for a very strange and, as you point out, ironic headline that actually got quite a bit of attention, right? University uh, sacks, or, or fires, as we say here, fires their uh, director of ethics for challenging the ethics of one of their Covid policies and that irony wasn't lost on many people here. So the the story made a bit of noise when it happened, but um, but I, I don't sense any uh, um, remorse or, or regret on the part of the university.
1: How did the case? We're dealing out? with
0: people here. were you know that that are never going to admit that they were that they may have been wrong.
1: That uh, that seems to be a universal problem. How did that case yeah. end up, Aaron?
0: So it ended up that I, I didn't prevail in that case, mostly on a technicality of, that has to do with the level of scrutiny that the court applies to a case. So they applied the lowest level of scrutiny to my case, and so we weren't re- really able to argue the science. And um, I, would, I would need to be making a case that the court believed was a constitutional claim. And I tried to make the argument that my constitutional rights were being violated. The court uh, didn't accept that argument in my case. And so they applied a very low level of scrutiny and said, well, Kariati has his science and the university has their experts. And we we're not really going to adjudicate between the two. We're just going to defer to basically defer to the institution. And we saw the courts behaving in that way throughout COVID, never wanting to question any of the policies that the uh, other branches of government were putting in place, or that even unelected bureaucrats, like you know public health officers uh, in, at the federal level or at the state level here in the United States and elsewhere, uh, we really saw the courts take a very deferential approach to, you know, allowing people who claim to be experts and claim to have all the answers, really to run roughshod over individual liberties and over constitutional rights. And that that legal aspect of what happened during Covid, is very concerning to me. I'm concerned about the misuse and the abuse of science. I'm concerned about you know the censorship that was happening, including government-sponsored censorship. Well, but I'm let's, also let's concerned. Talk, that, sorry to interrupt. Let's talk about that. I mean, that, yeah. what you were just
1: saying there are, are all very vivid subtexts in your book about how uh, in this secular world that we live in, that the truth is is often a little elusive and certainly in a court of law can be uh, twisted in any way you like. But what I'd like to talk about now is the other lawsuit that you're involved with. And you're alongside uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who uh, is well known to uh, viewers of this channel and Dr. Martin Kulldorff. This is against the United States government for censorship imposed during the COVID scare, which you were alluding to just a second ago now unlike yeah. most other cases regarding government censorship this involved which which normally involve just you know single instances of the government meddling in some sort of publication this this is much bigger because it involves the censorship of hundreds of thousands of citizens uh and uh, you right. make the claim that this is one of the most important censorship cases of our time now can you give us a little uh uh, update on how that case is coming along.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. And you're right, uh, Jay, Martin, and I, as as scientists and physicians who are censored, are bringing that case, case as private plaintiffs. And the case is also being brought by two uh, states within the United States, Missouri and Louisiana, against the federal government. Uh, and what we're alleging is that the federal government and many senior officials in the federal government we were pressuring and colluding with social media companies to censor free speech online. And initially we were focused on censorship related to COVID, but as we've uncovered more evidence in what's called the discovery process, where we can subpoena documents from the government and communications that they had with social media companies, we're realizing that this government censorship apparatus was censoring content on Facebook and Twitter, YouTube, other social media companies, related to all kinds of other issues of national importance here in the United States. Things from election integrity to uh, gender uh, ideology and disputes about gender-related policy to disputes about abortion and immigration, all kinds of things. The government was basically pressuring social media companies to do its bidding. And private companies here in the United States can arguably engage in censorship, but no one doubts and in, inarguably, the federal government cannot do that. That's a clear violation of the First Amendment of our uh, United States Constitution, which guarantees the right of free speech. We have very strong, or should have very strong, free speech connect, uh, uh, protections here in the United States if the Constitution is being upheld. And in this case, it's not. And what you pointed out is, is true. This case is very significant because previous cases in which the government was slapped down by the courts for censoring usually involve one publisher or one author or maybe one source or one series of articles that the government was trying to get changed or removed. Whereas this, because of the breadth and scope of this novel digital technology, uh, involves basically hundreds of thousands of Americans being censored over tens of millions of specific instances actually of censorship. So just the reach and the scope of this censorship leviathan is unlike anything that we've ever seen in the past, I think it's not an exaggeration to call it Orwellian. And in fact, how our case is going is that we were in court last week arguing for what's called a a temporary injunction, meaning basically we're asking the court before the case even goes to trial, just on the the basis of the documents we've submitted so far, that the government intervene and order the uh, that the that the court rather intervene and order the federal government to stop engaging in this activity until the court makes a ruling. Right. So it's asking the court to basically put a halt to a particular practice while the case is being tried. And I think we're going to get that injunction. And uh, I, I mentioned Orwell, but actually the judge in our case also mentioned Orwell last week after we made oral arguments uh, in in favor of our, our petition for an injunction, the judge asked the people in the courtroom if they had ever read Orwell's 1984, and if so, did they remember where the Ministry of Truth came from? Uh, and, and then he said, because it's relevant here, indicating, you know, it's relevant to our case and, w- and what we're alleging is happening in, in terms of our federal government. And of course, for those who haven't read the book, Orwell's Ministry of Truth, everything uh, that's named in the book is sort of named in this upside down way. So the Ministry of Truth is basically the censorship and propaganda arm of the government. Uh, you know, the Ministry of Love is the secret police that tortures people, uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and and so, I mean, what we're seeing can, here. Can, can I just, can is I just basically interrupt? Can, can you just, yeah?
1: Uh, how likely, if you do get that injunction, I mean, the, the view we get down here in Australia of, of the way the swamp, as Donald Trump would describe it, yeah. operates in Washington, yeah. is that it's told what to do and it just doesn't, doesn't comply because, you know, we've seen what the FBI did with the, with the Russia hoax um, and how yep. the Democrat Party um, behaves and the Democrat Party currently occupies the White House. I mean, it, yeah. you get this injunction, what will change? Will anything change?
0: Yeah, so that's a great. That's a really, really good question. A lot of people are are wondering that. One of the defendants named in our case is the Department of Justice, which is the you know the branch of the executive government responsible for enforcing laws and enforcing court rulings. And so if they're, <laughs> if, if they're implicated in this, like who's going to enforce the ruling of the court? I think we'll get actually if, if the judge issues an injunction, that will have an effect. And here's the reason why. It'll be the judge basically saying, at the most basic level, you've got to c- stop communicating with one another about censorship, and you've got to stop communicating with the social media companies about censorship. And that will stop at least temporarily, because any of those communications are still fair game, f- game for us to subpoena. So if they continue to do that, and we, uh, and we subpoena that information, and the judge looks at it and basically you know, recognizes that the federal government is not following his injunction order. Those individuals implicated could be liable for much more serious charges like contempt of court, which could involve potentially jail time. So I think they're going to duck and cover if we get the injunction. They may even start kind of throwing one another under the bus, you know, a little bit, trying to trying to out some of their, quote unquote, allies to, you know, throw and those allies uh, could be angry
1: mob. In, th- those allies could be in big tech as well I mean we we've already we're already seeing since Elon Musk took over Twitter we're already seeing relaxation of some of the censorship from the major social media yeah. platforms do you think a consequence of this injunction will be that some social media platforms and big tech will become yeah. less censorious
0: I, I do because this puts this puts the companies in a really, really tight spot, and I think they're going to be much more reluctant to communicate with or cooperate with the government on any content related matters in the future um, because uh, of their potential liability. The, another thing that happened recently in our case is that we converted it from just these two states plus the four private plaintiffs to being a class, what's called a class action lawsuit, meaning that I, as a private plaintiff, am representing everyone in the United States who was unlawfully censored. And if we prevail in this case, that opens up the door. It sets a precedent for other cases where other individuals can start going after either the government or the social media companies or both for damages uh, that happened as a result of government-sponsored censorship. And the companies are not going to want to incur that kind of legal liability or legal threat. So it's still an open case, open question about how to stop the government leviathan, especially after our case ends and this the scrutiny level kind of goes back to baseline, right? How How or what mechanism is going to enforce the court ruling at that point? But at the very least, the social media companies are going to be much, much more wary if we get a favorable ruling in this case. And I think this case is likely going to go to the Supreme Court, because we're gonna appeal all the way up if we don't get a favorable ruling and and the government's going to appeal all the way up.
1: Well, I've I've got to say that's pretty exciting information and and, uh, we will watch it very closely here because uh, what happens in the US regarding this kind of censorship and and what happened during COVID uh, applies as much here. Now let's return to some of the themes you talk about in the book. Um, You say in the book that the combination of multinational medical corporations and the World Health Organization uh, are a threat to national sovereignty. How soon, uh, I'm happy for you to elaborate on that. I mean, it kind of goes without saying, but how, how soon, mostly, how soon do you think we will see this threat materialize?
0: It could be as soon as the next year or two in terms of changes at the WHO, but the World Health Organization badly bungled the COVID pandemic response, very badly bungled it. And as a consequence of that, they're seeking more authority and more power for the next pandemic. It's, you know, this is the logic of how these bureaucracies work. And the World Health Organization is not a disinterested, you know, international observer as they like to paint themselves. They are beholden. To various interests, including the people that fund them. And only a portion of their funding comes from individual nation states. A very large chunk of their funding, in fact, their second largest funder right now, is uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So they get a lot of private funding as well. All of that funding comes with strings attached and expectations. If you look at the grants from uh, the Gates Foundation to the WHO, for example, they include very specific information about we want you to do this project, including these people hiring and you know letting these people run it. Uh, that money does not sort of come just from goodwill and generosity and you know do what you think is best or do what your member states think is best with it. Uh, so that makes the World Health Organization a very powerful actor on the world stage. And what they're doing now is actually trying to accrue more power, more unilateral authority to declare uh, emergencies. they 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 just re- recently reinvented a new category that is uh, not is lower than an international health emergency. it's It's sort of a category of of uh, situation of concern where they sort of swoop in and take over and tell you know the member state where this outbreak or whatever is occurring, how to manage it and what to do. And, um, you know, as I and and many others, David Bell, my colleague at the Brownstone Institute, former WHO uh, scientist, as we've argued, these all move in the direction of basically giving the director general of the WHO, an unelected bureaucrat, more and more authority over member states and basically allows other member states to, to pressure sovereign nations to fall in line with certain kinds of pandemic Responses And those responses, again, are not necessarily going to serve disinterested uh, parties or to serve the, the public welfare. Very often they will serve the interest of either the strongest nation state, the strongest, uh, you know, the biggest the biggest national benefactors, but also the biggest private benefactors, uh, people like Bill and Melinda Gates, who stand to benefit, who sta- stand to gain both power and uh, profit from certain approaches to pandemic management, particularly they've they've gone all in on a, a vaccine only strategy as a way of dealing with a viral outbreak.
1: And meanwhile, um, those nation states are busily introducing the uh, technology that would make the World Health Organization's job a whole lot easier. I'm referring, of course, to things like digital IDs and central bank digital currencies. I mean, ordinary people are kind of blindly watching this happen, not realizing that they could very easily be used against um, populations uh, by unelected officials, isn't it? Uh, Am I being too paranoid, Aaron?
0: Not at all. These are very, very concerning developments, which I talk about in Chapter 3 of The New Abnormal. So digital IDs are going to be tied to biometric data, your iris scan, your face ID, your fingerprint. Uh, Here in the United States, for example, when you go to an airport, you can give away this information to a quasi-private company, government-contracted company called Clear, um, and they'll let you skip ahead to the front of the security line. So these things are always sold on the basis of convenience. Oh, you forgot your passport or your driver's license at home, you don't have an ID, no worries. We'll just take your fingerprint or we'll scan your retina and you can walk right on through. Well, while we are doing this, we are giving giving away private and personalized information. The system in the United States, for example, if you read the fine print on exactly what you're consenting to when you sign up for this thing, uh, you're signing away the rights to what's called your credit score, which is basically banking information about you and your, your previous borrowing and spending and uh, repayment habits in the United States. So this is a, a clear sort of first step in the direction of combining our uh, private health information, with our personal identification information, with information about our whereabouts, our travel habits, and our spending habits. And once all of these things are integrated into single systems, basically we're going to be in a situation where if we don't comply with government directives or mandates, if we don't do the things required of a good citizen behavior report or social credit type of a, a schema we can very easily be locked out of things that a few years ago we we just considered ordinary civil rights like the right of freedom of movement or freedom of assembly freedom of association the free exercise of religion you know going to places <laughs> that we well, want to go y- to indeed, uh, and whether for fun y- or for a pilgrimage and uh, and the, the, most, uh, the last point I'll make on this just real quick is central bank digital currencies will allow the ultimate form of control, which will be basically locking you out of markets if you don't comply. Your money is not good anywhere if you're not up to speed on the things that we've told you to do.
1: Yeah, people don't realize a central bank digital currency is programmable. So just because the money appears in That's your right. account, doesn't mean it will stay there, unlike banknotes in your pocket. Now, this this brings me to one of the bigger themes of the book that, uh, that these systems are enabled because we live in a secular society and you talk a lot about the rise of scientism, which is the theory that the only knowledge worth knowing in this world is scientific. And that in turn leads to intellectual hubris Can you explain to the viewers uh, what we're leaving out, that the the idea of transcendental thoughts and and beauty might be excluded in this world of scientism and secularism?
0: Just so, yeah. So scientism attempts, like all totalitarian systems, and I argue in the book that scientism, which has to be distinguished from science, science is a disinterested inquiry into the truth about the material, World and about the natural world, which is a very good thing. I'm I'm a huge fan of science. I've loved science since I was a child, and I've uh, participated in scientific research throughout my career. But scientism is an ideology. It's a philosophical claim that that brute empirical facts or the things that can be known scientifically are the only valid form of knowledge. And like all totalitarian systems, scientism tries to monopolize what counts as knowledge and what counts as rationality. And in this case, it tries to claim expertise such that if you're not among the uh, the elites who are versed or trained or credentialed or whatever to say what is and is not the case, you don't really have a right to speak. You need to shut up and listen to the experts. right? Again, you see this tendency of monopolizing what counts as knowledge and rationality and this hiding behind so-called experts. And of course, the people in power who are doing that can anoint whoever they want as their experts or as their representative of the science, capital T, capital S, and silence any, anyone else who doesn't agree, including highly qualified scientific dissidents like my co-plaintiffs. You mentioned Jay Bhattacharya and Mar- Martin Kuldorf, a Stanford and Harvard uh, faculty members, two of the best epidemiologists in the world. But, of course, they're not the experts who have been anointed Indeed, By the powers it that be.
1: Brings us back to the ministry of truth, really, doesn't it? Now, the um, yeah. the response to the, to the pandemic treated people as potential vectors of disease, as you would know. Uh, you know, the scare campaign was all about locking us up because our fellow humans were dangerous to us. And this, yeah. in turn, kind of uh, led to a wider perception of humans just simply being cogs in a machine, which, uh, you know, probably we can uh, trace all the way back to Karl Marx. But uh, what I'd like to ask you, Aaron, is how do we get politicians now to just to treat us as humans instead?
0: Well, I think the first step is that we must insist that politicians take responsibility for their own decisions. They cannot hide behind uh, so-called experts that they anoint. All of the decisions that were made during the pandemic are inescapably political. They involve many different competing goods besides covid case counts or whatever metrics that, that we latched on to. Um, and so those who made bad decisions that ended up being harmful need to be held to account. They need to um, they need to be able to acknowledge the mistakes that they made. And if they're unwilling to do that, we need to take steps to remove them from power. So the very first thing that we should expect of any political leader is not perfection, not that they'll never make mistakes, but that they will take responsibility for their decisions and take responsibility for the good consequences of their decisions, but also acknowledge bad consequences that happened as a result of their decisions and tell us how they're gonna rectify, how they're gonna prevent that sort of problem in the future and i think it's very important for us to recognize that politicians are responsible for the decisions that they made and as you pointed out in your introduction which is so important is that all of us as citizens are also responsible i mean we get the political leaders that we deserve we get the political leaders at least in australia and in the united states supposedly from the people that we that we vote for right at the polls um, there's and some who and we also we also get the media well. we
1: deserve. It's the,
0: uh, it's yeah, the newspapers and Just TV so, stations. So,
1: right? yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, if the- nobody
0: bought those newspapers if nobody t- tuned into those programs, then you know they would be gone.
1: Indeed. Yeah. Well, the big the, the next development here in Australia, uh, and it's it's not it's not repeated often enough. But we need what we call a royal commission into what happened, what went right and what went wrong, uh, most of it being the latter uh, here in Australia. Um, Dr. Aaron Cariati, we've run out of time, but thank you for your time. It's been an absolute delight. And I can't recommend your book highly enough. Thanks again.
0: Appreciate that.
1: That's Californian Dr. Aaron Cariati, the author of The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you're looking for great commentary about the issues that affect you, have a look at our website, adh.tv, or our app for the latest from Alan Jones, Mark Stein, Lyle Shelton, Damian Currie, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at seven o'clock. Good night.